0: All right, let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us and that makes us glad. And now let the words that I say and the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. When I was a young boy, probably second or third grade, uh, there was a particular trip to the barber shop that became especially memorable because of a... um, mind-blowing life lesson I learned that day at the barber shop. So there I am, sitting there, getting my hair cut. My mom is sitting off to the side. Uh, My barber is making small talk with me, and he asked me the question, Hey, so Tim, you got a girlfriend? And uh, I was a pretty happy kid, and so I happily responded, Oh yeah, I actually have four. And I went on to tell him about the four girlfriends I had. I told him about each one. Um... In hindsight, I wish I, could have, I wish I could see my mom's face and the barber's face during that, because I didn't think anything of it. I thought that was a normal response. But um, when we got back in the car after that haircut, my mom had to bring up what I imagine had to have been a difficult conversation to initiate. Um, and she started out this way. She said, so Tim, can you uh, explain to me what's your understanding of what a girlfriend is? And I was like, well, I like her. She's pretty. I read her notes and I chase her around on the playground. And she's like, okay. Well, here's the thing. In order for someone to be your girlfriend, there has to be a two-way exclusive mutual commitment to one another. In other words, she was telling me, you have to pick one. You can't just spread your affection around to multiple people because then you really have nothing with any of them, right? So she had to tell me the hard truth that you can't have more than one girlfriend. You can't. So we've been learning about this guy, Elijah. We started last week. We're going to be in a six-week series on his life. And a big part of what Elijah was called by God to do in his day was similar to what my mom had to do that day after the barbershop. Just like my mom had to tell me the hard truth, you can't have more than one girlfriend, Elijah was called to tell the people of Israel the hard truth that you can't have more than one God. You can't have more than one God, and that's our big idea for today. I'll just tell you right now, that's our big idea. You can't have more than one God. Just like you can't have more than one girlfriend, you can't have more than one God. Uh, we're going to be looking at First Kings chapter 18 today. Um, so you can begin turning there. Let me give you a little background, though, before we jump into the text. So you'll remember that Elijah, who we're studying right now, he lived after Moses, long after Moses, who brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And you remember what they said when they came into the promised land after wandering around in the wilderness? They said, this is the land of milk and honey, right? It's great for pasturing animals. That's the milk part, right? And it's great for agriculture. That's the honey part. This is a fertile, fertile land. It's green. It's lush. But here's the big question throughout all of Israel's history. Who was it that made the promised land fertile? Who made the promised land fertile? That was a big question that arose in Israel's history. The people who were living there before the people of Israel came had an answer to that question. Their answer was that it was the god Baal. He was the one who made Canaan, the promised land, fertile. He was a god who looked like a bull, as you can tell. And he was their fertility god. You would um, worship him in a ceremony like this one. And how did he make the land fertile? Well, the story went that during the dry season, he went down into Sheol, the underworld, to uh, be with his consort, Asherah, was the goddess's name. And then when he came back up, that's when the rainy season began and he brought rain and fertility on on the earth. Because he was a fertility god, he was said to have had a spirit of lightning and a voice of thunder because when the lightning and thunder come, that's when the rainstorms come that bring the fertility in the land. So the people of Canaan would say, that's our answer to the question, who makes this land fertile? It's Baal. It's Baal that does it. But of course, the people of Israel had a different answer to that question. They believe that their God, Yahweh, is the name he revealed himself as. We see that as the Lord in all caps in our text. He's the one who makes the land fertile because he's the Lord over everything. And so they're Two different opinions about who makes this land fertile. Now, at the time Elijah's living, I'm giving you a lot of background, but this is all going to come in handy in our story, make the story make a lot more sense. At the time when Elijah's living, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two. So the 12 tribes have been split. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. They each have their own king. Elijah is ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel, and their king's name is Ahab. And him and his wife Jezebel, we learned about last week, they are doing something that was unthinkable in Israel. They're actually leading the people to stop worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, and actually start worshiping Baal and Asherah. The king of Israel is doing this. And so Elijah is called into this place and time in order to speak this truth that you can't have more than one God. They haven't gone into all-out Baal worship yet at the time of our text, It's a time of syncretism. That's a fancy word. It just means mixing or blending. People are trying to worship Yahweh, but worship Baal a little bit on the side. Kind of hedge our bets in case Baal's the one who brings the rains that bring fertility. We'll worship Baal too to make sure and cover all of our bases. So in this time of syncretism, Elijah is sent. And Elijah's name, obviously I think it's a great name. I named my son Elijah recently. But his name means the Lord is God. And that name is actually predictive of what Elijah is going to spend so much of his life doing, calling Israel that Baal is not God, the Lord, and the Lord alone is God. The way he did that last week in Pastor Craig's sermon in 1 Kings 17, was to say, there's going to be a drought in the land. There's not going to be any rain until I say so again. That obviously was a big hit on Baal, who was supposed to bring the rain, and it made King Ahab very angry. So as we pick up our text today in 1 Kings 18... That's where we're at. Ahab is angry. There's been a drought going on for three years. And we're going to see how there's a showdown that's going to take place. And this is all going to come to a head. Our story today is going to unfold in five parts. There is a search, a challenge, a question, a contest, and a restoration. Those will be the five parts of the text that we walk through today. Search, challenge, question, contest, and restoration. I won't read the whole text at the front end. We'll just approach it as we go. So you may have seen in your bulletin insert that the first 15 verses are the search. They're the first 15 verses. And in the interest of time, because we have a great report coming from the check team, they're going to spend the last part of the service telling us about their trip. So to prioritize our time this morning, I want to just summarize this first section, the search section, and then really dive in on the second section. The summary of the first 15 verses, if you look in your text, would be this. Ahab goes looking for Elijah to kill Elijah, but Elijah obeys God by showing himself to the wicked king Ahab, even though he knows Ahab's trying to kill him. And the reason that God does that is because he's going to say through Elijah that God is ready to bring rain on the earth again and end the drought. So that's where we are after the search. Ahab has been searching for Elijah and he's going to find him and they're going to meet. And now that brings us to verse 16 where we're going to dive in in earnest to the challenge in part two. The challenge, starting in verse 16 of 1 Kings 18. This summer, there's been a big challenge, 2017. Um, McGregor challenging Mayweather to a fight of two of the most feared fighters uh, in the world, right? It's happening in August. Everybody's talking about it. If you were to rewound to uh, Israel a few thousand years back, the challenge, the showdown that everybody would have been talking about is this one the challenge that Elijah laid before King Ahab, the challenge to see who's really God. Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? Let's take a look and see how that challenge went down in verses 16 through 19. Follow along as I read. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now that accusation there, troubler of Israel, is going to be important. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. And he, that's Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now at this point, sorry, I'll be making comments as we go, because this is such a long text. It might seem like Elijah's response was sort of like, a, an elementary school comeback. Do you remember when you were in elementary school and somebody said, You're ugly? You'd be like, I know you are, but what am I? Right? Classic, worked every time. But it sounds, seems like Elijah's doing that. Ahab says, You troubler of Israel. And Elijah's like, I haven't troubled Israel, but you have, right? But there's something more going on here. This phrase, troubler of Israel, is really important. It's showed up two other times in the Old Testament. And both times it was at a time of national crisis when people are trying to figure out whose fault is this crisis. The troubler of Israel is the one whose fault the crisis is. So it happened in Joshua chapter 7 when they lost a battle to a puny city that they shouldn't have lost to. And they're trying to figure out why did God abandon us? And then we found out, well, it's somebody's fault. that somebody's sinned in our congregation. And they go searching and find out who it is. And it's this guy Achan. And when they find out he stole stuff and that's why God punished them and let them get beat by their enemies, what happened to Achan? He was the troubler of Israel. And so he got killed in front of all of Israel. And then God was back on their side again, right? So Ahab's being very intentional about using this phrase, troubler of Israel, to talk to Elijah. He's accusing Elijah that, hey, Elijah, this drought that we're going through, it's your fault. And then Elijah turns it right back around on him. I haven't troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house. In other words, this drought, actually, Ahab, is the fault of your house, your family, and uh, your father's family for the sin that you've led Israel into. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. This is Elijah talking. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So the gauntlet has been laid. The showdown is going to take place. Elijah wants it to be public in front of everybody, just like in the past when troublers of Israel have come along. He wants the whole nation to know who exactly is the troubler of Israel and who exactly is the God who brings the rain. I had a chance in 2004 to stand on Mount Carmel. This is a picture I took from there, so you can get a little bit of a viewpoint there. It gave me the chills just reading this story up there on Mount Carmel, where it took place. And, man, I just wish I could have had a front row seat to this and be here to see this showdown when it took place. Let's move on to the third part of our text. It's in verses 20 and 21. The challenge has been accepted. The day of the showdown has arrived. And now Elijah asked the people a question in verses 20 and 21 that really deserves its own section of our sermon because it's such an important question. Looking at verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel... And gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, Here's the question How long will you go limping? Some of you might have wavering or wobbling in your translation. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So, this is the question that Elijah poses to Israel. It's a really important one. he finally has Israel's attention after three years of drought The people want to figure out what is going on with this. And so they come when they are called and they all show up and Elijah stands before them. And the question is basically, how long are you going to do this? It's time to pick one. Is the Lord God? Then follow him. If Baal's God, then follow him. But did you notice how Elijah said it? It's a kind of peculiar little uh, way he said it. We'd expect him to say, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. That would be the parallel statements, right? But you notice that's not what he says? He says, "If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, dot, 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 then follow him. It's like Elijah can't even bear the thought of Baal being mentioned as a God, that he can't even let the word come out of his lips as a, even a hypothetical. So he says, if the Lord is God, follow him, if Baal, then follow him." I love that about Elijah. But you remember from earlier in the service, don't you, that this isn't the first time someone stood in front of Israel and asked this question. Joshua asked it of the people years before when they first came into the promised land. He said, hey, there's lots of gods out there. Who are you going to serve? You should serve the Lord. But if you don't want to serve him, then there's all these other gods to choose from. Who's it going to be? And you remember how the people responded? We responded to the yellow words up on the screen. Those were their words. They said, we will serve the Lord, right? Right? They actually said, far be it from us to even think about serving these other gods. They were like offended that Joshua had even asked the question. We will serve the Lord, they resounded with a loud voice, all in unison. So, Elijah might have expected the same thing here. We as readers might expect the same thing. If we've been reading through the Old Testament and come to this point, Surely when a prophet of the Lord, after all the Lord's done for them, stands up in front of the people and says, Who are you going to choose, the Lord or this other God? The answer's clear. The people should stand up and say, We will serve the Lord. Let's look at what they say at the end of verse 21. It says, The people did not answer him a word. Strong candidate for saddest verse in the Bible. The people did not answer him a word. A word. Well, now it's time for Baal and for the Lord to put up or shut up. It's time for the contest. We've had the search, the challenge, the question. It's time for the contest in verse 22. Listen as I read and stop along the way to comment. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. So let's think about what's happened here. Why a bull? Well, that's Baal's animal. So Elijah's setting the terms, but he sets the terms in ways that are favorable to them. You get, we'll use your animal. Why fire from heaven? Why is that the contest? Because Baal, of course, is supposed to have a spirit of lightning. He's the storm god who brings the rains that bring fertility, right? So if he can do anything, he should be able to bring lightning from heaven, fire from heaven, right? So it's 450 against one. All the terms are in Baal's favor. So when the people hear the terms, they, of course, say, well, it is well-spoken. Then Elijah said, verse 25, to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. So they get first choice of which bull they use. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made. You notice there's that limp, or limping word again. Just a few verses earlier, Elijah had asked the people, how long are you going to go limping between two opinions? And now we see a suggestion of why the people are limping between two opinions, because they're following these prophets of Baal who are so powerless and impotent because of the impotent God that they worship, that all they can do is limp around this altar that they have made. And now it's time for Elijah to trash talk. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Young people, when they hear trash talk like this, what do you say? Chirp, chirp, right? Chirp, chirp. Elijah's chirping. He even goes so far as to say, hey, talk louder because maybe your God is on the toilet and just doesn't hear you, right? This is some serious... Making fun of here going on. Um, But ironically and comically, they just keep obeying Elijah. Elijah said in verse 27, Cry aloud. Look what they do in verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. That's because when the God you serve is no God at all, it doesn't matter how loud you call, he's not going to answer. Verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayers of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So what's Elijah doing here? Well, part of what he's doing is he's making it clear that there's no tricks or gimmicks involved here, right? This, if this sacrifice gets burned up, it's, it's soaking wet, so there's no tricks involved. But there's more going on, too, with how Elijah sets this up. He, you notice he built the altar out of 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and he poured 12 jars full of water over it, right? Four jars three times each. He's building something that represents Israel in miniature. If you would have looked at it, it would have been like a little mountain of stones, 12 stones being watered from above as if from heaven by God. And what he's praying for, what he's asking for is for God's fire to come down on this miniature representation of Israel, right? God's fire that so often represents his judgment in scripture. And the idea is that God's judgment would fall on this altar, on this miniature Israel, the representation of Israel, instead of on the people who deserve that fiery judgment. Right? The altar will take the punishment in place of the people. Let's see how it goes. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust. And looked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Remember what Elijah's name means it means, The Lord is God. Right? That was the cry of his heart, and that was his prayer twice. In verses 36 and 37, he repeats the prayer that, Lord, do this so that you will be shown to be God in Israel. And his prayer is answered, because after the Lord sends the fire from heaven, in verse 39, the people say it. They basically say Elijah's name restructured. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God. So now we've passed the contest. That was the climax of the story. All that's left is the resolution. We're going to call it restoration here. Verses 41 through 46. I'll read and comment and then I'll close this out. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Now this isn't just any kind of eating and drinking. This is Ahab, realizing that, begrudgingly, he has to admit that the Lord is God. And so now he, as king of Israel, has to renew the covenant between the Lord and his people. And so he's going to eat that covenant renewal meal. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went on to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So let's think about what Ahab has done in this chapter. He's climbed up Mount Carmel for the showdown. He climbed back down Mount Carmel to slaughter the priests of Baal. He climbed back up Mount Carmel again to pray for rain. He climbed down Mount Carmel again after he told Ahab, you better go home before the rain comes. And then the story ended, the chapter ended by him racing a chariot back to Jezreel, which is 17 miles away, and beating the chariot. Y'all, this is a man who has a fire in his chest that the Lord alone would be shown to be God in Israel. It's this story that my wife and I had in mind when we decided to name our son Elijah a month ago. Um, We wanted him to be a young man who has a fire in his chest that the Lord would be shown to be God. We even gave him the middle name Aiden, which means little fire, to kind of double down on it. Now, are there nights at 3 a.m., when he's showing a little fire in his chest to stay awake when everybody wants him asleep, that I wish maybe we would have named him something that means like placid or tranquil. <laughs> maybe. But in all seriousness, this is a man in Elijah, a man just like us, the Bible says. He, wasn't, he was just like us. But he had a fire burning in his chest that the Lord alone would show, be shown to be God. Well, you can't have more than one God. That was the cry of Elijah's life, and nowhere was that more passionately put on display than in this showdown we've seen today at Mount Carmel. If I had 90 minutes to preach this sermon, I still couldn't exhaust all the directions I'd like to take us for this last couple minutes together in this conclusion, because there's so many layers to this text, and there's so much richness in it. But I just want to leave us with one concluding thought that I think is the most grand and glorious of all the implications of this text for you and I this morning. What I have in mind is this. The God of the universe, Yahweh, the Lord, from this text, he made you and me in such a way that we can't have more than one God. Things go wrong for us if we try to, right? He made us in such a way that we keep being driven back to him. And the reason he did that is because he knows that worshiping him and him alone is actually what's best for us. It's actually what's best for us to worship the Lord and to worship the Lord alone. And so he loves us so much that he continues drawing us back to himself and taking the initiative to do so. But still, we all do worship other gods. We try to put other gods up next to the Lord and worship them on the side. A little bit of syncretism, just like third grade Tim wanted to have more than one girlfriend. And just like the people of Israel tried to worship Baal on the side, we all do the same thing. For some of us, it's that we leave our families lying dead on the train tracks of our work and our career, right? And what's really at the bottom of that is that we're worshiping work as a God and trusting it for our provision instead of trusting that the Lord will provide if we have more healthy rhythms in our lives. For others of us, it's maybe the God of affirmation, That when you're getting affirmation, everything in your life's going well. If you're not getting affirmation, everything in your life's falling apart. That's another God that you have alongside the Lord. Maybe for others of us, there's all sorts of gods that we have. For some of us, maybe it's our goodness that we trust that things will go well for us because we've been good people. I don't know what your gods are that you sometimes try to worship besides the Lord, but we all fall into them and we all have them that we try to worship in addition to worshiping the Lord. But our God, he makes the first move toward us. And I'm not sure you caught how it worked out here in this text, how he made the first move toward the people of Israel. What happened here in this text is that earlier in 1 Kings, King Solomon had told the people, if you worship other gods, there will be a drought. He actually said it, just like that. And he said, you know what's going to end the drought? If you turn back to God and you repent of your sins and you pray and ask his forgiveness, then he'll send rain again on the land. But you notice that's not how it worked out in our passage. very first verse of chapter 18, before the people had ever repented, before they had ever shown any signs at all of turning back to God, God had already said, I'm going to send rain upon the earth. I'm going to end this drought. It's like the Lord has so much grace and love for his people that he had already made the first move toward them to send rain on them and bless them, even though they hadn't turned back to him. He knew he was going to turn their hearts back to him once again. And friends, we have a God who does that for us. Even though we're worshiping other gods, even though each of us has gone astray to worship idols besides God, he has made the first move to love us and to draw us back to himself. And he's done that nowhere more clearly than in the person of Jesus, our Messiah. Think about this. Just as that altar was set up on a mountain in Israel, Mount Carmel, so our Jesus, our Messiah was lifted up on a hill outside Jerusalem. And just as that altar was composed of 12 stones to represent all of Israel, Jesus, our Messiah, said that he represented Israel in his own body. And just as that altar on top of Mount Carmel received the fiery judgment of God from on high in place of the people as a substitute for them, so our Jesus, on that hill of Calvary outside Jerusalem, took the punishment from God that you and I deserve so that we didn't have to experience it. That's how our God made the first move towards us to save us even when we were his enemies, when we were still spitting in his face and worshiping other gods on the side to hedge our bets. So somebody here this morning might feel like conviction that you've been worshiping more than one God besides the Lord. The good news this morning is that our God knew that you would do that. And he loved you anyway. He loved you so much that he took the initiative to save you and bring you back to himself through the person of Jesus, our Messiah, and his death on the cross. And so I just want to conclude with just one question for you, North Sub. And your response is actually critically important to this final question that I have. The question that arises from our text today is How long will you go limping? between two opinions if the lord is god follow him but if there's some other god out there and worship that god i'm choosing right now to believe that the silence that was just in the room is because i didn't communicate clearly during this sermon what's the appropriate response when someone lays that choice before you so i'm going to say it one more time clearly and then i'm going to ask the question again In the history of God's people, when someone stands in front of God's people and says, there's a choice, you can worship the Lord or worship other gods, the appropriate response is, we will worship the Lord, okay? So let me ask it one more time, and we'll really close. How long will you go wavering between two opinions? If the Lord is God, worship him. But if there's some other God out there, then worship that God. We will worship the Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we acknowledge, we affirm that you are the only true God. You bring the rain that waters the ground, that gives us food, and provides for us. And the greatest provision of all that you've provided for us is the provision of your son Jesus and his death on the cross on our behalf so that we could be with you forever, despite the fact that we worshiped other gods besides you. Lord, as we go into this time of offering, and we give of ourselves, and then as we get to hear from the check team for the last significant portion of this service, we are reminded that you made the first move toward us. And we're thankful that you hear our prayers, you receive our offerings, and you hear the rejoicing that we'll do as we hear from the check team on the basis of Jesus' work on our behalf on that cross. It's on that basis that we bring our prayers with confidence, we sing our songs with confidence, and we affirm, as we did here at the end of this service, at the end of this sermon, that we will serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.